Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Later in the program, a look at where Congress is on a lot of important cyber uh, legislation. But first, joining us is John Cofrancesco of Fortress Information Security, who's joining us uh, for what we hope will be a regular feature of this program, which is a look ahead, a service that John has been filling for us for the last couple of years. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me back. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. Uh, and so we thought we would uh, use this uh, as an opportunity to sort of set everybody's needles on a weekly basis, right? What's the stuff that's coming at us in the cyber universe, whether it's a threat issue, uh, whether it's a legislative issue, whether it's a policy issue, whether it's a technology issue. Over to you. What is it that folks ought to be paying attention to uh, as far as you're concerned and have uh, foremost on their radar screens? You know, what I have foremost on the radar screen this week is really a kinetic attack that actually happened against Russia. So you probably would have seen earlier in the month that Gazprom, which is the the Russian state-owned oil pipeline and oil discovery company, was attacked with a cyber attack and it had a kinetic event that actually caused two ruptures in pipelines. So this is really what I'm focused on this week. And, and it foretells a future that we've been talking about where cyber attacks have physical results. Um, and so walk us through a little bit on that, right? I mean, uh, it's, it's always been seen uh, as what sandworm, right? And last week, uh, uh, Justin Sherman joined us to discuss the sandworm attacks, right? I mean, that's the Russian GRU uh, unit, unit 74455 that does this uh, sort of thing and and tried to turn the lights out. But the CERT teams, the computer emergency response teams uh, from Ukraine, as well as I think Slovenia or Slovakia, I can't remember which one, um, you know, helped, uh, you know, stop that a- attack. How is this significant? Because this is turning the tables uh, on the Russians, right? Normally, we're worried about the Russian threat, not what it is folks are doing to the Russians. There might be some folks cheering. You're suggesting there should be some cheering, but maybe a lot more girding as well. Well, don't get me wrong. I'm definitely cheering. So anytime Russia is losing, I'm, I'm typically on, on the side of that, particularly given world circumstances. But, but what is concerning about it is if we can do it to them, that they might respond and doing it to us. So when I say we, I really mean the Western world. So, and, and we have seen how pipeline attacks can really cause tumult in, in our economy, in our day-to-day lives. And I think what this says is that some of those chicken little moments where people are saying the sky is falling, well, sometimes those turn out to be true and the sky is falling. And this is an example of where, no, it didn't happen to us, but it has happened. And, and now we really need to be dialing in on, okay, we know that SCADA, which are the type of systems that control gas pipelines, have a vulnerability that they can be exploited and that those can cause ruptures, et cetera. Uh, and that this is a real life thing. This isn't a, sort of a, a hypothetical thing anymore. There was this expectation Russia's going to lash out, Russia's going to attack, you know, shields up, defend forward. It, it appears that the United States has been doing a much better job, along with its allies and partners, of defending forward. Um, and is there a danger in your mind, and I'm going to be asking Mark Montgomery this question uh, in the bottom half of the show, where folks actually will let up their guard, right? The worst hasn't happened. Systems in the United States have not gone down, uh, right? I mean, we had everybody's attention focused 
uh, you know, you've lauded the administration in the efforts of driving collective security forward. Um, you know, is is there a danger at this point of folks sort of easing up and going like, hey, this isn't that bad. I don't I don't have to spend that extra 30 grand on cyber defenses. There is that threat. And I think we need to in, in the community need to set some reasonable expectations here and not just around cybersecurity, but about war in general. I mean, World War II lasted all of four or five years uh, from the American perspective. You know, lasted longer, obviously, from a European perspective, but but not tremendously longer. If I had told you in October of 2001, uh, after 9-11, that we would have been in Afghanistan for the next 20 years, I think you and, and most people uh, would have said, no way. We're, I mean, we're going to get in, we're going to do our business, but it's not going to take 20 years. And I think we're looking at a war between Russia and Ukraine that's now only two months old. We have no idea how long this is going to last. So I do think in the West, there is this feeling that, oh, this is going to end sometime soon. And I'm praying that it does. But we need to be preparing for a fight that could go on for years, because that is the reality of what we could have. And if that is the case, then, then what you're describing, sort of dropping those shields now would be the most foolish mistake because this is still very early days. And as Russia appears to be doing worse and worse, the likelihood that they lash out increases. Uh, and I think that that is really why I'm focused on this pipeline attack is because I've realized that, you know, this could be their reasoning for attacking our pipelines. They can say, well, we have good justification now. Right. Um, and, and that is a particular vulnerability, not just here in the United States, but the entire Western world. Um, well, I mean, I've, I've noted, right, this is not Russia's war on Ukraine. This is Russia's war on the West. Ukraine is the first battle. There are going to be many, many more battles uh, in this war with uh, the Russians, right? I mean, they've joined it. And like any autocrat, it, you know, his regime survival depends on it. A democracy can get out of Afghanistan. It can be messy. It can be chaotic. But the government of the United States is not going to collapse. The sinking of Moskva already has government um uh, news organizations questioning the leadership of the war, right? And ultimately, in that system, Vladimir Putin is is at the apex of it. Um, are you know you you guys uh, at Fortress started in the energy uh, sector? We had Peter uh, on one of your uh, co-founders uh, last week uh, to talk about the uh, Goldman investment. Where are we, John, in sort of securing right? Because you guys are a threat intelligence company, you're a data company. Um, where are we on shoring up the critical infrastructure pieces of this, right? The FBI uh, announcing a couple of weeks ago that uh, they'd uh, gone uh, to uh, systems worldwide to remove Russian malware. Uh, that appears to have improved everybody's collective uh, security, even if there were some questions about the legality of some of the things they do, right? I mean, FDI, FBI and the United States government, as well as our allies partners have said, you know, everything was on the up and up and with coordination, uh, as, as tends to be the case. What what are what are we learning from this attack, and where are we vis-a-vis -vis where the threat is and where it's going? Are are we as secure as we need to be at at this point for the things that really matter? Because things like Colonial Pipeline, uh, the the food um, interruption last year suggests we might not be as secure as we need to be. You know, we really have lopsided defense, right? So energy is actually quite good. We've invested a lot of money as a nation into this, and not just here in the United States, but the Western world in general recognizes, hey, nobody wants a nuclear power plant going down. Um, we probably haven't invested enough, but we, we have invested a good deal of money into that as a country and as a Western world. But other segments, and you've heard me talk about these in the past, water, sewage, there just isn't a budget for that in those organizations. There just hasn't been investment. They're particularly vulnerable. 
And then other industries, right? We always talk about food processing because there's so few major companies that are responsible for so much. Uh, healthcare is another great example. And so we really have lopsided defense. We're at a point where we really need to see legislation setting some baselines for these industries. I've been a big advocate of this. I have, I can report to you, seen really ears opening up, eyes opening up on Capitol Hill. Really, we'd like to see this happen immediately. Certainly, we'd love to see it come out in the 23 NDAA that sets some of these baselines. Because without them, organizations, companies, they just don't have enough justification to go out to spend it. You would think that, hey, I don't want my water facility going down would be enough. But when it comes down to the, to the CFO's decision making on who gets the dollars, and, and don't kid yourself, CFOs are the people who run cyber divisions, not CISOs. Um, you know, they, they can't get that funding without there being a law or regulation in place. Um, uh, always, always be nice to the CFO, John. Always be nice to the CFO. That's uh, sort of Congress's mantra too, right? Always be nice to your banker. Um, let me ask you one last, uh, one last question. Um, you know, we've, we've shown that we can move remarkably fast. You know, whether it was the FBI uh, going after Russian malware uh, in terms of the efficacy of uh, Cyber Command, NSA, and other branches of the government uh, defending forward. Are, are you seeing, in as much as you can discuss this, the, the speed needle of defense starting to move at the pace, right? I mean, the, the uh, and it was uh, Slovakia uh, that uh, was part of the CERT, right? It was uh, impressive for a lot of people how quickly Ukrainian uh, and Slovakian CERT uh, moved uh, in the sandworm, uh, most recent sandworm incident. Are you satisfied at the speed with which we're able to defend and respond and, and, and put defenses in where we might not have had as, as good defenses? I'm not satisfied, but I am enthused about how it's going. We are moving in the right direction. And, you know, some of us thought that would be unexpected, but, but it is absolutely the case that a lot of eyes and ears have been open to this. And, and we can tell uh, not only in how we're seeing big clients behave, but the market behave and legislators behave, that folks who didn't have a seat at the table, those real cybersecurity experts who were sort of, let's talk to them next week, have become, let's talk to you right now. And, and that is a real, real positive change that's come out of this. And I really have to credit some of the leaders of both parties here, who you wouldn't think of as being the first people in cybersecurity. Uh, you know, you have Rick Scott from Florida, who, you know, this is, you know, there's a healthcare magnet who became a senator. His office has been one of the leaders behind the scenes recently on this to sort of get legislation pushed through. We've seen other folks on the other side of the aisle, Jen Easterly, most, most famously at CISA, really move the market on this. And, it, and it's a really, really positive change. So satisfaction, no, I might not ever be satisfied, but, but certainly I'm enthused at the progress. John, thanks so much for joining us. Looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having us. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. And joining us now is retired United States Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, uh, the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He is also a Senior Advisor on the Bipartisan Cyber uh, Space Solarium uh, Commission that is ongoing. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for uh, joining us, especially since you joined us just a couple of weeks ago. 
Thank you for having me, Volko. Uh, always a pleasure uh, having you on the program. We heard um, a little bit about the threat portfolio from John Cofrancesco uh, at the top at the top of the show. And I wanted to ask you, uh, because this uh, session was actually driven by uh, one of our catch-up calls, uh, and uh, you mentioned, um, as you did uh, the last time you appeared on the program, exactly the nature of some of the cyber uh, legislation that's before Congress, and also how that's maturing, especially in terms of China cyber competes. Walk us through what's happening in some of the legislation and what we should expect uh, from a cyber standpoint. Hey, thanks, Vago. You know, this really, it's a, this is an important time. It, it seemed, it used to be that the NDA, the National Defense Authorization Act, was where the cyber got done. And, and you know, we do, we do see 30 to 50 cyber provisions every year in the National Defense Authorization Act. But the truth is, every major bill now has the opportunity for, for cyber impact. And, and uh, you mentioned one, the, uh, the reconciliation of the USICA and Capetes Act in a conference. Um, that's taking a Senate-passed version led by Senator Schumer and Senator Young and a House-passed uh, uh, version that, that is much more expansive and conferencing the two together. There is a, the, the basis of these two bills are first the CHIPS Act, which is you know, $52 billion program to invest in, uh, in chips and semiconductor uh, research and development and production in the United States that I think has really broad bipartisan support in both chambers. You could count that as going through. The second big part of it is the Endless Frontiers Act, which was done by you know, some uncommon bedfellows, uh, Ro Khanna, uh, a Democrat, and Mike Gallagher, a Republican in, in, the, in the House. And that was to put about $100 billion into the National Science Foundation to really get at you know, kind of basic research and development grants around the country and all kinds of emerging technologies. You know, just the kind of like, um, you know, if you want to call it a moonshot initiative, but, you know, to really spark this, um, you know, outside of the DOD realm uh, investment. Um, ironically, that version is now in the Senate version of that they're working. And the House has ended up with a slightly different version that breaks it all up, you know, a little bit less money broken up into three or four different agencies how that gets reconciled is really important. We need that basic R&D funding and emerging technologies. And we need stuff that's not being driven by DOD. We need stuff that's being you know, driven by you know, the civilian uh, you know, um, uh, scientific community at universities. And this, we still need DOD and DARPA and all the great work that goes on there, but this is separate from that. And this is you know, a significant investment over five years. I really hope they can conference that to success. And it will be a major defeat for, you know, kind of the righteous legislation if that doesn't get done. Uh, but I wouldn't guarantee it just yet. Now, also buried in that bill is all kinds of stuff. There's really neat stuff on the American Security Drone Act. You know, we got to it's about driving, you know, Chinese drones out of our you know, public safety um, you know, um, agencies, you know, the you know, state, local and the, and the federal uh, law enforcement needs to not be operating. Um, you know, these Chinese drones that, that have the ability to communicate back to China, the information they see. More importantly, I don't think our critical infrastructures should be using these drones to map their systems. When I was back when I was the PACOM J3 and was worried a lot about targeting, if you'd said, what would be the manna from heaven? I'd say, well, if I could run a series of drones up and down all the Chinese infrastructure and have the mapping sent back to me here in, uh, in, uh, in Honolulu, though, that would be fantastic. Well, effectively, that option exists to the Chinese. I'm not, I don't know that they're exploiting it yet. I would be surprised if they weren't, 
But, you know, we've, we definitely need to get ourselves, we need to recognize that the passage of some of the cyber laws in China make it very hard for us to do business with, with critical infrastructure impacting uh, Chinese companies. And so, so that American security drones, ASDA, really needs to get passed. It's in both bills. I'm, I'm liking its, 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 its chances. But beyond that, there's tons of good cybersecurity legislation in that this competes bill that needs to get done. You know, there's the codifying a national risk management cycle, kind of like a fit up for Department of you know, for, for uh, cybersecurity, a five-year defense plan for cybersecurity, getting good investments into our STEM education and the, the cyber, school, cyber course scholarship for service program and, uh, and figuring out how to effectively combat China and Russia at international standard setting organizations where they're driving the U.S. principles of transparency and rule of law out of these organizations and replacing them with, with Chinese commitments to state, you know, to state sovereignty and the, and, uh, and the kind of, you know, a, a snooping mentality. So lots of great stuff in there. Let's hope it gets passed. Um, that, that's a great point because um, we, we have so many, so much other evidence uh, that things right down to printers, uh, for example, are trying to communicate uh, uh, you know, back home, uh, you could argue some of it is legitimate, right? It's it's trying to communicate to get updates. Uh, on the other hand, there is a concern uh, that uh, that they could also serve intelligence purposes. What are some of the other pieces of legislation and other provisions uh, that you're tracking and you think are making progress? Well, two, two other things come to mind. One, we do have a Cyber Diplomacy Act coming to fruition. This is organizing the State Department, you know, one of the most bureaucratic Byzantine uh, you know, agencies that we have in the federal government. No surprise that they've struggled with cybersecurity over the last eight to 12 years. The, the administration itself came up with a good plan that the Congress needs to institutionalize it in law so that it can't be altered with it as it has in the past. And uh, so the Cyber Diplomacy Act will do that. It's passed the House. The Senate has a companion version that's reasonably close and they're both reasonably close to what the State Department came up with. I think the State Department won't get all it wants, but it'll get 90%. Hopefully it understands that's a win and that uh, we'll pass the Cyber Diplomacy Act either independently or riding on this China bill I mentioned. And, and I'll give you one other big one. The appropriation subcommittees are all meeting this week, every one of them reviewing the budgets that were the president's 23 budget that was put down three weeks ago. Now, I think the armed services one actually is delayed, delayed slightly because of the the, just the, the recent appearance of the J books, but but the other committees are looking at what what was there, and they're going to begin to mark up those bills. And, and as we all know, the president's budget is kind of like the initial suggestion, and uh, so there's a lot of important. The president's budget had some great cybersecurity stuff in it. It also had a few misses. So hopefully, these committees will 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 validate the president's good decisions, and then uh, correct the gaps that that uh, his team left. And I think that's really important at the places like Department of Treasury where they need to invest in their sector risk management responsibilities and uh, in our um, education. Again, I mentioned the STEM and the cyber core where the National Science Foundation needs to take a, a round turn on that. And one other one I'll tell you missed, you know, the National Institutes for Standards Technology, it's where all our cybersecurity standards are put together. You know, we're tasking it, uh, you know, uh, significantly over the last year and a half with a lot of executive orders and it needs about an 80% pay bump to do all this. It got a 20% bump, you know, somewhere in the middle really needs to get done this year. And uh, relative magnitude, tell the audience, right? Because anybody who knows NIST knows it's critical uh, element of this. So when you say 20, right, how much money are we talking about in, so, in, a, in a 
a pretty big budget request. We, we thought it should have gone from about 70 or 75 billion. This is in the cybersecurity division area from 75 billion to about 130 to 140 billion. And instead it, it, it gained about, uh, about 18, uh, excuse me, these are millions. It gained about 18 million. So instead of gaining 60 to 80 million, it gained 18 million. And uh, so we probably need another this year, you know, I'd split that difference and add about 20 to 25 million more in. And, and that seems like small money, but we're in the area, we're in the non-DOD budgets here, Bago. So sometimes 25 million is no longer like budget dust or pocket lint or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's real money and, it, and, um, and they're going to have to squeeze it out of someplace else. But you can't, cybersecurity, at, you know, the NIST cybersecurity team needs to have the money uh, that, that we're talking about in order to develop the standards that we need throughout all our infrastructures and all our business frameworks. Uh, no other government department can afford to build a class of ships uh, and then decommission them without getting any value out of them, uh, except for uh, you know the Pentagon and increasingly <laughs> the, the Department of the Navy. But uh, anyway, we, we digress. Um, let me take you to the J books, right? You mentioned the justification books. Uh, obviously, uh, they're out over the last uh, week. We were talking sort of in the main uh, and in the broad. You've had an opportunity to look at the J books. What are some of the more granular details you see about how the administration was uh, is spending money? Because the last time you joined us, right, the top line budget had just come out as opposed to actually the, the details of it. So, you know, I, I think kind of the biggest one, you know, you, you mentioned CISA, and I, I think that's probably where I would, uh, where I'd put my, um, you know, my, my greatest discussion, you know, as we, as we dug into that, you know, even though I, I'm proud of this administration for kind of coming around, you know, last year, they did a, a really kind of limp 5% increase, you know, from 2 billion to 2.1 billion. Congress just scraped that off the, the, the table and put in almost 2.6 billion, so a 30% increase, which was the number we needed last year. The, 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 the uh, president came back and matched it this year. And so, so that's, a good, that's a good thing. Um, the things that worry me the most though in, in, the cyber, uh, in, in the cyber budget was as you dig into the, the J books, even with that 2.5 billion, they did not make the kind of investments that, that we expect to see in uh, uh, that we expect to see in um, K through 12 education program, for example, where, you know, we expected to see 10 to $15 million and kind of train the trainer efforts. And, and instead we saw it zeroed out um, that that worried us. We did not see the investment in, in the CISA cybersecurity advisors. These are people who go to regional offices and kind of help, you know, outside DC, kind of where, where the message is most important. You know, we we didn't see the kind of significant increase to flow the this workforce out of DC and into um, the regions, and so we requested a, another ten million in that. We did not see the kind of money uh, for the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative that we'd like to see. This is the information sharing environment that. Jen Easterly is building, you know, kind of on her own back, basically, you know, we want to see some specific appropriations against that. So we recommended some money in there. And uh, when I say we, what, what we've done is the Cyber Security Commission has written a very detailed appropriations letter that we send back to these committees that, you know, we sent it last night. So that as the committees begin their markups, they have an alternate viewpoint to the president's budget where we broadly say, good job, however, and then we give them about uh, 27 gaps to close. And I just listed for you four or five, but they add up to billions of dollars and, and that's important, but they, they're all in the, 
you know, uh, 10 to kind of 50 to $60 million range. And uh, do you think the military services themselves are making progress to address their software and hardware vulnerabilities? You know, we've been hearing from Chris Cleary, the Navy's principal cyber uh, advisor uh, for some time. Um, you know, we talked to Frank Kennel, the Air Force Secretary, about the, the criticality of uh, securing uh, existing combat systems, not just making sure that B-21 and future systems are secure, but actually, right, I mean, ultimately you really degrade their efficacy if, if you have software and hardware vulnerabilities. Are you convinced there's sufficient a focus in this budget to try to address those uh, so shortcomings? I have, I have two thoughts on that. And, you know, that's a, a great point. First of all, if Chris Cleary says something, I tend to believe it till I see otherwise. Um, Frank Kendall's commitment to keeping the first things first is really admirable. And you can see that in his Air Force budget. So, you know, both both those uh, 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 senior civil servants have done a fantastic job. Um, but what I would say on the cybersecurity, it's uh, it's much more nefarious than that, uh, Vago. What happens is the, the cybersecurity is in, like when you're procuring a weapon system, it's in there at the start. At the start, there was a requirement. So they have it in there, you know, 7% of the budget for buildings weapons and will go to the cybersecurity of it. But the first thing that happens is a salami slice comes down on that weapon system at some point in you know six to 12 to 18 month time frame, And cybersecurity gets uh, excessively penalized in that salami slice. But then when money comes back later on, which it inevitably does to that weapon system, the cybersecurity is not prioritized going back in. So it's not that every weapon system starts with no feeling about, no thoughts about cybersecurity. It starts with it, it just doesn't finish with it. So uh, that's almost, that's harder to regulate. It's harder to assess. The J book doesn't show you that in a, in, in a meaningful way. Uh, that really takes senior leadership. And, and the people who point this out are GAO. And, you know, GAO every two years puts out this kind of like gut-wrenching story that they, I, I think they cut and paste a lot of it because, you know, things haven't changed. Uh, you know, we studied the top 20 major acquisition systems and each one of them, they started out with cybersecurity. By the time they finished the product, cybersecurity had been sacrificed. Because the problem when you insert money back in is everybody has a good idea of a new, you know, capacity improving modification, and they don't go back to take care of the guts of the problem, the cybersecurity or the logistics statement that you cut during the salami slicing. So that's a very long way of saying I'm still not optimistic. Uh, and I should point out, right, uh, John Co-Francesco at the top of the program, right, S-bombs and H-bombs, uh, right, software uh, bill of origin as well as hardware bill of origin are so critical. And we've also heard uh, on this program from Josh uh, Laspinoso of Shift5, who's, who's discussed uh, that very thing, right? I mean, the number of instances the GAO has uncovered where you have a brand new aircraft, uh, you know, uh, dot, 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 maybe an F-35, that gets plugged into a 15-year-old maintenance computer that actually may be riddled with um, with software vulnerabilities, right, or malware that then ends up ending up in a in a in a high-end warfighting system. Every two years, the Government Accountability Office reminds us of that too. Unfortunately, what they just described is a consistent, a persistent problem that it, that really does undermine the cybersecurity of the force. Let me, let me ask you one last question, uh, Mark. The administration is looking to rewrite NSPM uh, 13. That's the National Security Presidential Memorandum uh, 13. First, tell us, uh, remind the audience what NSPM 13 is, why it's being rewritten, and why the direction it may be going in might be problematic. Uh, give yeah, give us your for, sense across that. Yeah, thank you, Vago, for bringing this up. You know, NSPM 13 was done during the Trump administration and and um, it, it was an effort, and it, it certainly goes well beyond the Trump administration in the sense that the Department of Defense 
have been working towards this for years. But it was an effort by the by the Trump administration's National Security Council Department of Defense to streamline the how we plan and execute uh, offensive cyber operations. It didn't streamline the initial decision-making process, whether or not you conduct a campaign. That still has a broad interagency process where you reach agreements on left and right limits and rules. But then after you've made a decision that you're going to do something, um, it, it, uh, it, it passes the ball to an agency, usually Department of Defense. It could be another uh, agency to execute that, uh, that cyber operation. Um, I think it, it restored it or provided a lot of agility and flexibility to our offensive cyber uh, operations, something that they inherently need um, because you have very often very short windows for taking advantage of an exploitation or for, uh, or for um, uh, weakening a, an adversary system so that you can do a penetration. Um, uh, the, what's, and I'm not sure that there was a problem to fix. You know, all the reports we had were that the 28, there was, this was done just prior to the 2018 elections, uh, that you know, our response to the 2018 elections was much better. The 2016, obviously we all know Russia conducted an aggressive cyber-enabled information operations campaign against the 16, 18, and 20 elections. But the 18 and 20 elections went much better because we were told by both Bolton and Esper and Nakasone, that's uh, National Security Advisor Bolton, Defense Secretary Esper, and uh, Cybercom NSA Commander uh, General Paul Nakasone, that NSPM 13, you know, was played an effective role in allowing us to be more responsive and agile. Uh, I'm not sure what problem the uh, Biden administration is trying to fix, but we're told that they're considering rewriting this. I suspect. State Department's never liked how this settled. I think they would like to keep their finger stirring the drink all the way through planning and execution of cyber operations. Um, as unrealistic as that may sound uh, uh, to uh, a, um, a, you know, a, a, a practitioner uh, of, cyber, of uh, cyber operations, they would like to do that. And I think that they've convinced the National Security Council to allow this issue to be brought back up and reviewed by the deputies and principals. I'm hoping the Department of Defense can fend this off to some degree and minimize any impact on the system we have, because unfortunately you won't know that you screwed up the system until you have a screwed up situation. In other words, you don't know you've lost your agility and flexibility until you can't be agile and flexible, and then it's kind of too late. And I'm just not sure what problem we're fixing other than State Department angst uh, that was already adjudicated by a long drawn out interagency process. So the, the short answer is, I think something's happening and I hope it's not too deleterious to the positive impact that NSPM 13, I think has provided over the last four years. Um, you had uh, mentioned an all-star uh, all uh, cyber team. I should also give a shout out to Chris Krebs, uh, who was at CISA at the time and did a, yep. a simply ex extraordinary uh, job um, when when he was in the job during before the election during the election and indeed during during his entire tenure it was an absolute pleasure seeing him at South by Southwest uh, just a couple of weeks ago uh, let me just quick follow up I mean, one of the things the administration uh, Mark is trying to do is sort of uh, create more international standards right I mean we saw for example with the anti uh, you know that the United States is not going to do any uh, uh, destructive direct to orbit satellite tests. The satellite anti-satellite test. 
there's a message. There are a whole series of other ways for us to be able to do this. Increasingly, we're seeing spacecraft in orbit uh, that are doing stuff. So you don't have to shoot something terrestrially all the way up into orbit uh, in order to blow a satellite up. And the United States is trying to set up rules of the road, right? Sort of codify this stuff. Is this a little bit of an event, an effort to sort of codify more rules of the road, something that Chris Painter, among other people, have been talking about? Um, you know, is there is there a grander plan here aside from maybe a dilutive one or a turf? I want my fingers involved. Is this sort of a global standards uh, setting thing that we're trying to do to ultimately take us to a better legalistic foundation on what the rules of the offensive road should be? So I, I think both those things could be true. Like NSPM 13 is our offensive cyber operations. I, I believe what State Department is trying to State Department is trying to do there is get a little more control over how our cyber operations impact allies. That's probably what they're headed at. So it's probably separate from this issue. But you raise another issue that's simultaneously going on, which is that, and I, I support this one, where State Department's trying to reconstitute its ability to be the leader on setting cyber norms and standards internationally. Uh, I think that's suffered over the last four or five years, and I'm excited to see them them do it. And I think it hasn't been strong since Chris Painter was leading that effort. And so I'm excited to uh, to see them get more engaged. I, I would say in general with Russia and China, I take a trust but verify approach and verification is a little harder in cyberspace, but I'm confident we can work on mechanisms to do that. Um, but uh, you know, the, the, I think we do this initially with a coalition of the willing. In other words, work with our known allies and partners to kind of create the standards we want to see and then bring them to the broader international organizations. Mark, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Already looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Father.